0: This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with hitting coach for the Milwaukee Brewers, Brenton Del Cero. He discusses his transition into coaching and the lessons he learned from a professional career, some key factors as a hitting coach and why he believes in creating adaptable athletes, as well as how they prepare players for series or identifying particular trends in theirs and pitchers' performance. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Right, so I know we caught up a little bit there, Brenton. Uh I had some time scale issues or timing issues with the with the um differences of time zones but luckily I was an hour early rather than an hour late which is always promising but yeah how are things your end are you all good
1: great uh, busy time of year as we uh, we're finishing up our regular season we have a couple teams that are in a playoff race or potential playoff berth and then we are pre- preparing for our our off-season camps so there's a, a lot of moving parts right now as, as we as we say and um, as we're, we're navigating this
0: Awesome. So for people that don't know you, don't know your background, do you want to give us a bit of an oversight of who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, my current role is I'm the minor league hitting coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, I, this is my second year in the role. I was previously assistant hitting coordinator for about two and a half years. Um, if you want to count COVID as a season that we never had. Um, that was a role that I was in. And then um, the previous, oh, geez, let's see, the previous 13 years before that, I was a hitting coach or a manager um, with the Brewers. And then I previously spent nine years with the Angels. Um, backtrack even and further, I played uh, seven seasons professionally for the Los Angeles Angels. Um, and then I was drafted by the Angels out of college. So um, four years uh, in college and seven professionally. And then now I think I'm going into my 21st year coaching um, or, or being in professional baseball.
0: Perfect. Yeah, I think a really nice overview and probably a, a good example of that pathway for a lot of players that could potentially go into coaching. Um, I guess the, the question around that is what drew you towards it is when when your professional playing days are over? What made you make <laughs> that transition across and go, actually, I'm going to get on the other side of the, uh, the desk and... Happen to be supporting players rather than being the one trying to be supported or yelled at. I don't know what the environment is like.
1: <laughs> uh, we try not to yell, I'll tell you that much, but there, there are times that happens. Uh, no, really, Um, I was a backup my whole career professionally. Everybody that I backed up played in the big leagues. So um, as I got a little bit older, I quickly saw the writing on the wall and, and realized that I may not be able to enjoy this as long as I wanted to as a player. Um, or I may not be able to get to the big leagues, you know, and, and then as I, I got a little bit older and progressed to the AAA level, I, I quickly realized that it just probably wasn't going to be a possibility. So um, I took pride in in being a, a clubhouse guy, um, tr- took pride in being a really good teammate. And so when the time came, I started talking with my coaches and managers about the possibility of getting into coaching um, professionally, that is, and, and and the pathway to do that. And I think just by my me identifying that I wanted to do that, and that was going to be a passion of mine, um, I had some people in my corner immediately. And if any potential job postings came about, they were going to vouch for me. And so um, I was in a unique position where I was playing, and then I was offered a what we call a bullpen catching position at the major league level for the Angels, um, which would effectively immediately end my playing career and begin my coaching career. Um, it, it, was, it was a unique thing due to an injury from somebody within the organization and there was immediate need and I, and I filled it. So I got to spend uh, three quarters of a major league season at the major league level. I, I reached that, that goal that I was trying to get to, but not as a player, but I got to experience that lifestyle. Um, and then from there, I, I folded right into the system and became a minor league hitting coach. And it, it was just about, you know, my original thought process was, if I treat people right, if I treated the game right, the game was going to take care of me. And in the end, uh, an opportunity came about and it allowed me to to start my, my coaching career. Um, so really, in summation, it was about being a good person and, and wanting to do it.
0: So I think linking back to what you said there, and it's quite an interesting point, you said that you managed to fulfill your dream, maybe not in the way that you'd envisioned. Could you just talk us through what that was like for you? Because I'd imagine, you know, going from triple uh, A, AA, single A and stuff, and then all of a sudden being ultimately the show, which is what MLB is called, and the bright lights and whatnot, regardless of the fact that you weren't playing, probably still as a person who's loved, baseball and imagine his entire life must be an incredible thing so could you just talk through I guess what you were feeling at that point and and when you realized that that was actually going to happen what that was like
1: it it was it was a mixed bag of emotions I'll tell you that because um, my playing days were over so there was an abrupt end to my playing days and at that point as a young adult that's all I had done for the majority of my life was you know um, as a little kid I played t-ball baseball little league high or I played baseball collegiately and then professionally. So majority of my life, if not all of my life was spent playing baseball. Um, I didn't specialize in it, but it was just, that's all I knew. So for my playing portion to be abrupt, abruptly ended, it, it was shocking and it was hard, but at the same time, the other end of the spectrum was I'm going to the big leagues to be a bullpen catcher. I get to experience this, something that I've been chasing for, but I get to experience this in a different capacity. So um, it was exciting. Um, There there was a lot of uncertainty about the next step and how I was going to navigate that. Um, The the really unique thing was I knew all the coaches and I knew the majority of the players. Some of the the players were my teammates, uh, but I knew the majority of the coaches. So there was a level of comfortability there. Um, The grand life lesson was that your path is never going to be linear, right? It's, it's always going to be winding and and unexpected. And I, I didn't realize that until um, probably just a couple of years ago. In the in the role that I'm in now, is like to see where I was, where I wanted to get, how I got there, and then where I'm at now. It, it just it, it's it's such a it's such an incredible thing to be able to reflect on and look back on. And, and I'm extremely lucky, and, and you know I'm thankful for the opportunities, but. It just wasn't the straight line that I imagined it was going to be.
0: Yeah, and I think that it, I guess that's the the key for certain people to be able to reflect back, because it's really hard to enjoy at the moment. From what you're saying, is like actually you'd want to do it as a player. You're not there's an opportunity there, um, but the reflection piece to go actually I did really well there, or mm-hmm. to have that opportunity I am really grateful for. So I think that's a you know a, a fascinating piece in terms of how that reflection piece can probably help you now as a a, a coach and probably prepare individuals for what they're going to feel or what they're going to see if they do make that jump. Was there any particular feeling or anything that stood out to you that was different going from those minor leagues into the, the pro leagues? Was there anything that you thought actually, when you reflect now or at the time where you go, that's something I can help my players be prepared for that we might not have thought about?
1: The jump in talent, the jump in level, was glaring. Um, you hear about it all the time, and then just the, the the preparation for the environment is is something that you you can't prepare for in the minor leagues, um, in the minor leagues at the AAA level. On a very good night, depending on the the stadium and, and the town you're playing in, you might see sixteen thousand fans in the stadium but nothing prepares you to walk out on a field where there's 40,000 people like screaming, you know, and there's three levels to the stadium, you know, there's three decks and and you're just like, there's nothing that prepares you for that. So that experience and then just the overall talent that you see on a daily basis where you might not see that as frequently in the minor leagues, there's a lot of talent in the minor leagues. You just don't see it maybe on the day-to-day basis that you would in the major leagues, because that is the best of the best. So just just the like the, the onslaught of talents um that you see. There's just it, it's incredible. And it was incredible to see and then it was incredible to see the preparation and, and the confidence at the major league level. Again, things that you can't prepare for. You think you're confident, you think you know your abilities, but then to see just it to another level, an extreme um heightened of awareness, an extreme focus, but also the the level of trust and confidence that they have in them. Um it, it, it was it was just really insightful and it was a great learning experience but it, it was one of those things that just punched me in the face as soon as I got there and it was just like okay I need to take my focus even though I wasn't playing to another level to make sure that I'm supporting these players as best as possible
0: no I think that's that's really interesting and what you said there I guess is at a level of um honesty of going actually the the level here is a jump and it's probably something I reflect on as a player. I think I made the most out of what I had. But mm-hmm. actually, if you look at the people that I was playing against that made the jump, it's like, I probably should have been on the same pitch picture, but I was because <laughs> I made the most of what I had and mm-hmm. that, that's allowed them to progress. From your uh, personal perspective or your coaching journey, um, is there anyone in particular that stands out to you that's really helped you define like, your philosophy of how you should coach and why you coach that way? Is there any... Yeah, moment you go that you reflect on now, where you go, actually, you know what they've probably made me into the coach that I am, or have helped sculpture me because that was a really positive moment in my career that helped me press on as a player.
1: I, I wouldn't say that there was one specific coach, but there was a group of of men who helped me along, and I was able to just pull nuggets from them. You know whether whether it was you know, tone and conversation, whether it was actual advice, uh, their own experiences, uh, there, there was things that I, w- I, I use on a daily basis that, that, that I have heavily been influenced by, uh, th- these group of coaches and, and these group of coaches really like at one point took me under their, under their wing, you know, and, 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 and like helped me as a very young and eager coach to calm down. And, and I think there was a few coaches there that, that had this, like this even keel, easygoing presence, and and I think that I really started to gravitate towards that um, as I got out on my own and started kind of finding my own style of coaching, because early on in my career, I was trying to replicate or imitate coaches that I had that, like, were winning coaches, and then I just felt like I was, was a fake. I was an imposter, and I was like, this just doesn't feel like me, and I haven't found my style, and it wasn't until about five or six years into my coaching journey where I was like, I'm really comfortable with this style or this approach and, and being this way. Um, and, you know, there's times where I can be really intense, but at the end of the day, I think what's helped me is that we're all trying, we're all, you know, like we're, we're all trying to do our best. Nobody's trying to mess up. And, and I think at the end of the day, I was told by by one of our pitching coaches who who's a friend of mine, um, I, we're just not going to let a bad performance ruin our day. And so, that really stuck with me and it struck a nerve. And it was like, oh, I don't have to go home and lose sleep about this because in baseball, we get to come back the very next day and play again and play again. Like off days are very rare. And so, you know, it's like letting one bad performance ruin my night or how I go about the the rest of my day. Um, It put it in perspective. And I was like, okay, let's come back tomorrow. see if we can fix it, see if we can course correct, but I'm just not gonna let it ruin my day. So um, I learned, you know, patience, you know, and, and persistent patience, <laughs> if you will. But um, I, I, you know, it, it wasn't until about year six where I, where I really found, found my stride, you know, and, and found some comfortability with, with my style.
0: And that mannerism or that that nature, was that similar to how you played or was that different? Did you segregate yourself <laughs> between the two? Uh,
1: no, I. It, it wasn't. I was very intense. You know, being a backup, I, I only got to play sparingly as, as a catcher. And so, um, I was very intense on the days that I knew I was playing and everything had to be right. And and I was a bit of a pleaser as a player and, and looking back on it now, it, it, that's probably the only regret that I do have about my playing career is that it was such a pleaser that I wasn't able to explore and be curious. I just wanted to please my coaches. And I thought if I took that approach, that would save me from being released um, or, you know, like basically terminated from, from playing. And so I, I viewed it as that, that approach. and looking back on it now. I just, I, I wish that I would have explored more, been more creative in my environments, you know, and, and, and just asked more questions. But um, now I, I try to, to encourage players not to be that way and, and get them to understand that it's okay to, to challenge a coach in obviously a respectful way, but don't be afraid to ask why don't be afraid to explore. Um, how can I best help you be the best player or the best version of yourself?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, and I would say that's probably a, a shift that I've seen working in coaching. Actually, that exploration bit for players and allowing them to go and explore different, different scenarios and different ways of working, etc. So, from your job now, um, could you just give an oversight? What does a hitting coach, um, in I guess major leagues, minor league, what do they actually do on a day-to-day basis? What are they trying to support the players with? What does that look like on a training day, on an off mm-hmm. day, on a, on a game day? What does that actually look like?
1: Yeah. So in my current role as, as a coordinator, I oversee nine coaches who help oversee 90 plus players in our organization. My day-to-day operations is, is just ensuring that our initiatives, the initiatives that I have laid out for the department are being implemented. Um, you know, documented training is documented. Our our players, our coaches feel supported and are setting up training environments that best drive our departmental initiatives and then our, our players' developmental goals. Um, as far as a hitting coach, the boots on the ground, the day-to-day operations, you know, every, every coach has their own routine and their own style, obviously, within our system. So for me, if I'm a hitting coach at an affiliate, I normally arrive at the affiliate around noon, make sure that any sort of scouting reports that need to be refined or updated are are ready to go to present to the players, Uh, communication with the players about training that day um, has been presented to them via text message or some sort of social platform that we use, and then make sure that the actual training environment is prepared when players walk in. Um, Typically, our coaches have what we call individual work where they get some one-on-one time with players, you know, and that's where we get maybe a little bit more internal um, that time. And then as the whole group gathers, that's what we call early work. There is some sort of uh, designated drill for that day. And then we go on the field and we hit batting practice. Um, One of the things that we really try to strive for is that when you do that individual time, that is the time for you to be internal. And then as we progress towards competition, We stray away from that and we start to get more external and we focus on preparation for the game. And that's where a lot of our our group training comes into play um, as we focus and prepare for our opponent that night.
0: Perfect. So obviously you mentioned there around, I guess, the development piece. One thing Mm -hmm. in baseball is just the number of games that you play. So how do you mirror uh the development piece because obviously ideally you want to get players through an entire pathway to be able to go to MLB but there's going to be stops along the way there's going to be challenges along the way and there's games along the way so how do you mirror up the development piece of trying to get them better maybe breaking down the swing to make it better or breaking down a principle to make it better compared to the performance piece which you know, if you're not performing well, as you alluded to earlier, you get cut or you get dropped down. Um, how how do you mirror those two things? How do you manage those?
1: Well, we obviously, we have internal metrics that help us track that and, and track the performance. Um, again, our, our departmental initiatives are more centered on performance within the game and not the actual individual training, um, the team training that we do helps develop that in-game performance. But we recognize too that the players have to have pathways and individual things to get better at to make them a valuable asset for organization and a potential um, um what's the word um, a potential um piece to our major league roster that is going to be a productive piece. There it is. Sorry. Um a productive asset to our major league roster. So what we do is we develop individual goals for these players that we know is going to lead to in-game success or we believe it's going to lead to in-game success. Uh, One one of the things, one of my personal pillars that I have, you know, for me and for our staff is relatability. And and it's being able to relate to the players. You know, um, you're going to every hitting coach is going to have anywhere from 12 to 14 hitters. And so you've got 12 to 14 personalities that you have to be able to relate to and, and, and be able to like speak their language and meet them on their own terms. And so um, we recognize that the path is never a straight one. We know that we're going to have to deviate at times to get the player back on the path. And, and so managing workload, um, whether some days you know workload is, is a little bit heavier than others, especially since we play every day is pretty critical. Um, So using good judgment there, um, there's a collaboration piece where we're we're talking with our strength and our medical departments to make sure that the player isn't being overworked. And then that targeted individual practice, when we get into it, um, really understanding what the player is thinking to obviously build buy-in, but we want to build that trust, right? And so like, we have to have that trust and that relatability to create that buy-in for the player to understand like, this is the direction we want to move you in. and we have conversations like one of the biggest things that we talk about with our staff is that be able to have conversations and connect with players find out where they're at because you just never know what's going to walk in the door you know whether there's having some family problems or there's financial problems or they didn't sleep well or, or there's problems with significant others you, you just never know so find out where they're at before we actually start our work day and just make sure that they are ready to be engaged and, and so um I, I think at the end of the day, it's probably more life coaching than it is actual baseball coaching to make sure that the player can get through the day and, and feel supported um, and trusted and, and, and feel like he's got somebody there in his corner you know, on a daily basis.
0: And if you're looking at it from an um, evaluation piece, is it a constant evaluation after every game or does that look like blocks? Like, for example, when we're working with the kids, we, we go on 12-week blocks, which we then sit and review mm-hmm. them off the back and we let them know what we think. They give their feedback and we kind of block it out over more substantial periods. What does it look like from your perspective and how much of that is, I guess, an internal process um, in the organisation and how much is that explicit to the players to say this is what we've seen?
1: So we, we play, we currently play six game series um, throughout the week. Okay. So the course of a season is blocked into six game series. So I try not to get too granular during a week because a lot of things can happen in just one week that are not indicative of the actual player and what they're capable of doing. So I'll take a bi-weekly, a monthly um, look at things. And then we play halves. So there's a first half and second half. And we'll if we need to make some adjustments, what, what we call the all-star break, you know, that's the end of the first half and almost the start of the second half. We'll make some adjustments within that time frame. And then at the end of the year, really reflect and, and look back on and it's like, okay, did you feel like we supported you? Did you like the direction we were moving you in? Um, we obviously explain the why we're moving players in that direction, but just we want them to be um, co designers, you know, and, and active participants in this journey, and not just feel like things are being dictated to them. Um, and those conversations are happening, you know, Michael, throughout the course of the season. But for me, globally, I do a bi weekly, a monthly, and then a half analysis on guys and just kind of try to figure out where they're at because things can really fluctuate fast in baseball, given the fact that you can be bad one week and really good the next week. And, and if, you know, the snapshot of the sample size is so small, you don't really want to put a whole lot of investment into a smaller sample size. So you just want to give it some time to play out and, and give the players, you know, some some leash, you know, to like be who they are and and really kind of identify some of the trends that they're experiencing.
0: And I guess one of the key skills, because I actually think baseball is one of the hardest games in my opinion i think it's crazy like how yeah. people could try and hit a you know 97 mile an hour pitch, uh, pitch then followed by a slider or a curveball whatever it is uh, mm-hmm. i think is incredible one of the i guess key skills for them around that would be pitch recognition and understanding mm-hmm. what's coming and what moment in the count certain things might be coming and then when you get to the top level i would imagine and correct me if i'm wrong but Opposing pitching staffs and pitchers are going to be looking at you and you're at bat and go, okay, he bites on this. Mm-hmm. So if you get him in a 3-2 count, you can get him with a curveball, you can get him with a slider, or you can get him with a fast pitch inside. How do you go around supporting players of identifying maybe less helpful trends in their mm-hmm. game and understanding they want to play what they see? But also yeah. that actually you're, you're waiting for a good ball that you're going to be able to put in field or it's something that you're going to be able to get runners on bases and all that type of stuff and actually yeah. ultimately get some uh, points on the board.
1: Yeah, it's it's incredibly hard. Like you're right. Like the pitching has gotten so tough at the major league level and and throughout professional baseball, players are th- throwing harder than they have ever have. They're, they're stronger than they ever have been. Um, they're also they're also always ahead of hitting because they they dictate the tempo of the game. They hold the baseball and the, base, the game can't move forward until the pitcher makes the pitch. So we're at the mercy of them. So um, when, a, when a player, you know, when, when certain trends become visible and a player struggles, we, we try to create training environments that allow them to create visual representation of what they're struggling with. And, and try to see if they can problem solve and figure it out. Um, you know, we obviously identify the obvious. You know, say a, per, a, a hitter struggles with a certain pitch type. Well, he knows that. We know that. How do how do we best develop a contingency plan, or how do we like become a better hitter at that pitch? And so, you know, um, some guys recognize pitches better than others, and so. There, there, there's you know there's avenues of development there. It's like do we just not even attack that pitch and try to lay off that pitch, and really you know focus on our strengths, or do we take that weakness and really try to exploit that in our training, and so that way you develop a, like what the good pitch is to hit of that certain pitch type. So say you know we we have a lot of young hitters that struggle with sliders or you know breaking balls, so we'll do a lot of our training with those guys will be on breaking balls in the dirt that they're always chasing and go, this is what the pitch looks like when you're chasing it. So now we build out that, that visual representation of a bad pitch that they're chasing and then try to mix in good pitches of that breaking ball, what we call hanging sliders or hanging breaking balls and say, these are the ones we want you to hit. And then we will, we will do some sort of variability in the training where there's a hanging breaking ball, there's a chase breaking ball, and there might be a fastball and say, okay, so here's a a mix of pitches. You have to be able to identify the hanging slider, lay off the the chase slider and lay off the fastball. So, you know, it's not easy. Um, Again, it's a partnership with the athlete and trying to figure out what they're comfortable with. We can give them suggestions that is backed by data and evidence, but Again, I go back to it. We have to be able to relate to the player and understand what they're thinking to get them to like be better in training. That way, they're better in game. And so um, it, it's not easy. It's just, again, meeting the individual where they are. We as an organization know what they're struggling with. We present it to them. How do we make this better? And we, and we ultimately leave it up to them and, and the coaches and, and how they plan to do it.
0: And what do you think differentiates people that are good at um picking up pitches and that
1: aren't good at it? Some guys could, it's visual. They just see see things different. Some of, some of the hitters are the, are, you know, are really tremendous at proprioception. They're great at space, time and awareness. Um, They're, they're great at depth perception. Some guys just don't, you know, don't have that. And then some guys are just overall better athletes. They can move quicker. They can make decisions better. They can make decisions faster. Um, So, you know, like at the end of the day, it's like you just you see it and they just they see things quicker. They process things quicker. And um, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. We, we can train it. We can make them better. But when you're talking about the outliers of the game, they just process things faster. They, they make better decisions. Uh, they see things quicker. They see things better. They see things differently than, you know, us backups that you know never played every day and never got there you know they just they just do and, and they make it look easy and, and that's when you know like internally that they just it's easy for them and 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 it's uh it's quite amazing to see you know as they're coming up and they're developing uh, we have a few of those athletes in our system right now where where it's just the game's easy to them and and uh it, it's it's amazing to see
0: you think and if it any of it is like pathway driven have they been through any experiences as little leaguers or in is there anything you could not hang your hat on necessarily but go (laughs) actually some of them have been through these types of challenges at younger age groups which has lent itself to higher up is yeah is there anything in that space that you've seen that you think helps
1: i I think at the end of the day you know this hits on something that we are really trying to explore and and tackle in our own training is that the players that don't specialize at such an early age are the ones that just seem to be the natural athletes and have the most success. Uh, they, they've been encouraged to do other sports, explore other spaces, um, you know, play sports within the season, right? So when it's football season, you play football, basketball, track, uh, whether, you know, it's Ninja Warrior or parkour, all those things like they, they have Movement solutions to different problems they're gonna see in baseball, whereas the kids who specialized very early um in baseball um they they're just they create such deep attractors that they're just they just don't have the ability to adapt and adjust as quick and so you know that that's where these guys come in and they're just they're just better athletes and and um if they haven't been coached, they've just played and they've been you know playing the game and and so there is no fear there there is no Rhyme or reason for their movements or their thought process. It's, it's just simply their athletes playing a game. And, and those are the ones that just really seem to fly through our system and, and get to the big leagues.
0: Um, that, That's really interesting because I've been on a podcast with another individual and he was amazed by how low down in the UK we go for specialization. Mm-hmm. So to put it into perspective for you, we. Um, Quite often will specialize from the age of seven. Yeah. Um, And you won't get under 18. I'd be very surprised if you had a dual sport athlete where i know mm-hmm. you know people like russell wilson and patrick mahomes had mm-hmm. scholarships at college going baseball and football and russell wilson obviously got drafted and he got drafted in tune to going down the football route so i find that fascinating the fact that the people having more success tend to be those that understand their surroundings and body yeah are better from having exposure whereas mm-hmm. obviously in the uk we just don't do that it's just really really yeah. separate which is crazy
1: yeah and, and it's like I I understand it. I understand, you know, being a parent myself, I understand why parents would try to do that. But, you know, my my son right now who's eight years old plays soccer, you know, sorry, football (laughs) plays, plays, plays football, uh, plays baseball, does parkour ninja warrior training and, and he's doing all of these things. And then he gets out there and just to actually see his ability to navigate obstacles in space is, is astonishing and my, my daughter you know who is doing soccer who is doing tee ball she, she just turned five but like she's doing ballet and dance like she's experiencing and exploring movements that are going to be really important for her if she chooses to play sports down the road when she gets older um whereas some of these kids i ask you know when we get kids drafted or or you know, our inner inner system, did you do any sports as a youth besides baseball? And the answer is no. Then you can draw, you know, quick parallels to why they struggle is because they just don't know how to move differently. They don't know how to think differently. They don't know how to process differently. It's all they've ever done. And so there's not as much creativity. And so then there's not as much problem solving when, you know, there's a certain pitch type that they struggle with. And it's just like, well, I've always done it this way. Well, Okay. We have to create a different solution to this problem, and this may take a little longer. So um, it's unique, it's challenging, it's fun, but uh, getting our our athletes to understand that we're trying to create training environments that are going to be challenging and put you in unique situations, but it's going to allow you to be an athlete and not just a baseball player.
0: And do you think that gives them flexibility in the swing? um mm-hmm. so in terms of where you know where they move their body in certain angles and things like that do you think it gives them a bit more flexibility to ultimately get contact on the ball because that's what you're trying to do mm-hmm. but being able to leverage themselves in maybe unfamiliar ways in order to get that
1: yeah great great question great point point. one of our things that we try to accomplish globally for our hitting department is we're trying to train athleticism adaptability and adjustability the three A's right and so we're we're looking to create hitters that can adapt to certain pitchers certain pitch types pitches in in different zones you know and so you have to be an athlete who can adapt and adjust not just like in training and on one certain pitch but like to multiple multiple arm slots you know you're going to have pitchers that don't throw from the same arm slot so how are you going to solve that problem? in competition, in potentially critical situations that have, you know, giant ramifications to the team, you know, whether it's in the playoffs or World Series or you're in playoff contention, like we need you to come through in this critical situation. We've all done it right. Bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, 3-2 count, World Series, here comes the pitch. And it's like, What are you going to do in that situation? And and so um, in our training, we we really do take pride in trying to create athletes who are, you know, adaptable and adjustable with with various pitch types, with various arm angles, with with various zones. And and so um, because we know that no two pitches are going to be the same and no two swings are going to be the same. So why would we
0: try to train for that? Okay, so that that answers my next question. I think I was going to say about do you try and stand as uh, standardized swing patterns or swing movements, or do you just let them kind of be who they are and then work off principles?
1: Yeah, that's another great question. Our one of our our main initiatives, and, and players have a hard time who are, who are new and coming into organizations. We tell them right off the bat, we want you to be you. You know, we're going to work with what you have um first and foremost show you why you got drafted show us why you were signed and when you can do that that allows us to gain a better understanding of who you are so we don't we don't specialize in one swing plane or one swing path um again when you do that you create a hitter who can only hit one pitch who can only hit one timing who can only hit one speed and probably only hit one location and when you and when you when you do that um you're not setting yourself up for success. You're not setting your organization up for success. You're not setting up your team for success. So no, we we, we don't train that. We, we we try to, again, meet the player where they're at, see what we're working with. And then from there, try to create as much adaptability and adjustability within the swing as we can.
0: And I mean, I, I'm more versed in cricket. So I'm going to use this <laughs> as a cricket example. But over, I would say, probably the last 10 years, we've seen quite a lot of creativity from batters in terms of how to deal with problems so if you can imagine for for listeners from the U.S. um, cricket you can do 360 degree scoring the ramp shots come in where you've got bowlers or pitchers coming in at 95 miles an hour and batters are essentially ramping it over the catcher's head to go and get fours and sixes and then the next one they'll switch from a right-handed swing to left-handed to open up a different uh, scoring location because obviously you can kind of move everywhere so is there what yeah what is the level of creativity in in batting (laughs) within baseball I I mean I appreciate that there are set parameters in terms of Mm -hmm. where foul ball line is and where they can or can't hit but how much creativity is there in terms of using different techniques to get desired outcomes?
1: Right. Uh, great question. So I was just talking with one of our our, our hitters um, at the A-ball level who's from Australia, and we were talking about cricket. And, you know, he said it, it, it's funny that, like, in cricket, you may have 80 tries to get the guy out. You know, it may take 80 tries because matches last for, last forever. Uh, and then, whereas in baseball, the pitcher's got essentially three tries to strike you out, right? Like, you know, like you've got three strikes and you're out. And so, you know, we, we talked about like that is why we spend so much time focusing in on the ability to be athletic and adaptable while you're in the box, because it could be one pitch and your at bat's over, and then you have to wait 45 minutes to an hour potentially for your next at bat. And what are you going to do then? So, like, you know, one, we're training our athletes to understand that like the value in each at bat is so high because you may not get multiple chances to create the outcome that you're looking for and then two, you know on a layer on top of that is we try to create some sort of accountability within the at-bat so and what i mean is like are you swinging at pitches in the strike zone and and that that has to do a lot with our training as well Is like we're trying to make you an accountable hitter so that way your teammates your coaching staff can count on you to make good decisions within the strike zone. Again, because there is such a premium on your at-bats and if you're throwing them away, if you're not treating them seriously, well, then there's not much value in what you're doing and how you're training. So to get the, the batted ball outcome, we have simplified it to, we want you to make good decisions within the strike zone. We want you to swing at those pitches. And when you do, you're hitting those pitches hard and ultimately you're hitting them in the air. And when you can do that on a consistent basis, we are saying you are a successful hitter. Um, we have thrown out the batting average, you know, within our organization. And, and this isn't like a secret or anything, but like we just don't value it as much because it, it's just not as important. It's not an, as indicative of who the player actually is. And so we've simplified our process that we want you to swing at strikes. We want you to hit strikes hard and we want you to hit strikes in the air And understand that you're only going to get limited opportunities to do that. So let's really be hyper aware and focused in our training so that when you do get those opportunities in games, you're prepared to handle that moment in that situation.
0: Remind me to come back to the batting average bit, because I think that's a really interesting around the data (laughs) Um, in terms of, I guess, preparing players for that jump because you're talking about adaptability um, mm-hmm. and, you know, a, a, a ability to be able to adapt in the scenario and ultimately the top level where they're able to change pitch heights, velocity, et cetera, is going to be challenging for them. How can you recreate that in training? Because, you know, I you, one of the, th- the first things you said in the status conversation was the standard kind of jumped as soon as you got to the show it jumped up so how are you actually getting your guys who are along that uh, development pathway the ability to see those pitches regularly enough that they can get an understanding of what it feels like what, what they see what they don't see what strengths and weaknesses are but also not so you're you know, running your star pitcher into the ground and he's going to be out (laughs) with tennis elbow or anything like that. So what what does that look like in terms of actually giving them adequate support to see what it's going to be when they get there?
1: So we, like many other organizations in Major League Baseball, um, have pitching machines that actually have the capability through a tablet to change pitch types, pitch shapes, speed, locations, um, and we can do that without the hitter even knowing what pitch is coming. So our training becomes more game-like and representative of what they're going to see in the game. And we try to train as much as we can off of these machines to just build out confidence and preparation for what they're going to see that night. Uh, we, we do have the capability of putting uh, that opposing pitcher's pitch types, you know, what we call an arsenal, into the tablet, into the machine and it can somewhat replicate it. And so the pitchers will be able to, or the hitters will be able to see what the pitcher is featuring that night and get as many at-bats, many turns off of that pitcher as they want in training before they go, they face them that night. So um, a lot of organizations have these machines. Um, It's no secret that's out there. Um, Something that we do shoot for in training and we've prepared our players is is we do shoot for like a 20% success rate in training when you're facing these machines. You know, again, I explained earlier, you know, we're building up to competition. So the farther we are away from competition, it gets a little bit more internal. So like the, the feels that the hitter's looking for, we give them that opportunity to have that. And then as we get closer to competition, we want to shift away from that and get more to the ball actually coming at you and moving at you in space. And how are you going to compete with that? And so um, we do a lot of that in, in training is where, when you are facing this machine, if you are, 80 to 90 percent successful at this machine. It's not hard enough. It's not nasty enough. We need to adjust it so that, you know, the training is harder than the actual game, and that way, you know, when you get into the game, it's not as 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 tough as, you know, it may be if you're not training that way.
0: And then another bit before I go to the band average. You mentioned around um, the 45 minute break or an hour break between innings, which was something I hadn't even thought about. Now I know they have to go and field and whatnot, mm-hmm. but how would you manage? either emotions or concentration or anxiety or excitement during that period is there anything you do with them to work in that space because imagine if you just had an absolute stinker at bat and they caught you going at something that you shouldn't have gone for then you're probably beating yourself up for that hour going right I'm not going for that again and that can be yeah. a vicious cycle to get in where actually all you're focusing on is this negative outcome that you just had and that's not mm-hmm. going to help you kind of i i liken it to amnesia i say like the best quarterbacks in american football i think they have amnesia right. something goes well they ignore it something goes bad mm-hmm. they ignore it um, and yeah. so yeah how, how do you work with your your um your players on that of in that 45 minute it being good voices in their head rather than stitching mm-hmm. themselves up
1: and you know like just just to clarify like, hopefully it's not 45 minutes between at bats but you know if like, you think about it it's like you hit you have like you said a stinker of an at bat you have to wait eight more turns for your guys for your turn to come back up. And so like, you just don't know how the game progresses. Like there is a potential of a long break between at-bats and and it may be 20 minutes and maybe 30 minutes, you know, you just never know. But uh, to get back to your question, there, there's that psychological aspect that that I ask of our coaches to be able to provide to the players. Uh, We do want to give them some space after that, you know, poor at-bat to understand, like, let them reflect, let them have some, some, space and time to themselves to really think about the at-bat and then very similar to training as we get closer and prepare for that at-bat that's when the coach will go to the player and start prepping them okay what happened in the at-bat what can we learn from the at-bat and how do we prepare to combat that for our second or third time around you know and we have to understand that that second or third time around may may be a different pitcher it might not even be the same pitcher so again We have to make sure that we have processes in place that like keep things simple for our athletes. And that's why we're just asking our guys to swing at strikes and hit strikes hard in the air. So like they understand that depending, regardless of who's on the mound and, you know, independent of how you feel, you still have certain tasks that you have to accomplish with each at bat, with each turn. And so we want our coaches to understand who the athlete is, who that person is as they progress. What did we learn? How can we be better this time around? Or how can we potentially replicate the outcome that we had in our first at bat or second at bat that was really good? You know, it's like, do you understand he may not throw this pitch type or what did you do to hit that home run? You know, some guys were saying, I don't know. I just blocked out. Some guys were saying, you know what? I was looking for a certain pitch. I got it. And I was able to, you know, put the bat on the ball and get the outcome I wanted. Um, It's just going to vary. The answers are going to vary. But I think again, like the adaptability of the coach being able to, have that psychological um, level of relatability for the player and, and just get them to believe in like what we need them to do to be successful um, is really critical, but time and space. And then as they get closer to their turn, reaching out to the guy and making sure that he's prepared and has a game plan.
0: And this is a little bit of a segue. Do they do any psychological stuff in your coaching courses? I assume that you guys do coaching courses to be part of thing same as in football we do you know our fa license or your license okay. and get all the way up uh um, yeah. do you guys do similar and do they do anything in that space or not really
1: we we have a we have a, a sports psych department that you know is there to support our organization and, and the players um as far as the coaches like being licensed or taking courses, no, we, we we don't ask them to take any any kind of psychological courses. We we have people for that in place for that really really good and smart people. Yeah. So we we just we want our coaches to be coaches. And, and so um, again, th- that's where like the relatability comes into play, um, being able to to, to meet the players, speak their language, you know, essentially, um, and, and just build trust. And, and I think once you have the trust of the of the athlete then you're going to be able to have any kind of you know, communication and dialogue with them, um, no matter what they're feeling, because they do realize at the end of the day that the coach trusts them.
0: No, it's, it's just an interesting one because I I've, I've been, haven't been through loads of different courses. I know that ours are predominantly technical and tactical work that we do in okay. those courses. And uh, it always amazes me that actually a lot of a coach's work is around supporting players that, needs psychological support and I'm always one going, maybe they should put more of that in like you don't have to be an expert <laughs> in it but giving you some tools to go actually might be an idea but again it's a minefield so we won't go down it too much um in terms of the batting average thing what really interested me is obviously baseball I think we know has gone kind of went or has gone data mad and for, for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. obviously open athletics being a large proportion of that How challenging has it been for yourself and the industry to kind of figure out what is actually important and what isn't? Because I'd imagine there came a time where everyone's trawling through all this data going, I found something, I found something, I found something. And you don't want to chuck the baby out with the bathwater, but also you want stuff that's important, that's useful, Mm -hmm. rather than just getting bombarded with excel spreadsheets or python sheets or whatever it is so yeah how how challenging has that been as an industry to figure out what's actually working and what is more important and what's specialized for your organization
1: well it's it's an ever-changing landscape right it just seems like there's a new stack coming out every month or every week um we, we have a brilliant research and development and analytical department, you know, where they're able to really dive into some of this stuff and then present the information to us. I, I think for me as a coordinator and for us as a staff, what we have to do is we have to be conduits of the information to our players and deliver that information in simple and digestible ways, you know, in, in terms where, where the player is going to understand it. Um, my coaches understand it and they're not overwhelmed with it so what we do is we pick out a a few I mean don't get me wrong there's a lot of them but we pick out a few that we feel that the players are going to relate to and understand to understand with and then we try to train some of that stuff and, and know that some of these some of these metrics or the these this this data leads to success and so um you know there's a, there's there's a lot of the common ones that are very you know intuitive you know strikeout percentage if the guy's striking out a lot we know that he's not making a lot of contact right so it's like well everybody knows that but some of, there's some other deeper ones that really indicate whether or not this is a truly good hitter and versus the subjective opinions of some people like oh, i think he's a good hitter well we we have evidence to back that up and and so and this is why so um it's a collaborative effort between departments to make sure that we're all talking and then it's a holistic view for the player's development. Um, These are the things he's good at. These are the things he's bad at. This is what this means. This is what that means. Okay. Let's get that in front of the player. Should we put that in front of the player? And and so um, that's part of my job is to filter out some of the things that are important to get in front of the player and some of the things that maybe we just need as coaches need to know about and the player doesn't need to know about. So um, it's a balancing act, if you will, but um it, it's like i said there, there's something new it seems like coming out every day or there's there's a shift and, and and they might go a different direction or make some adjustments with some of these metrics and, and this data um yeah but it it, it can be complicated it could be tough but i think at the end of the day if you just kind of remain calm and, and just try to learn and keep an open mind about it you'll You'll eventually pick it up.
0: <laughs> I like the fact there's still a bit of ambiguity in there as well. So I like the fact that how far down the road you guys are, that you're still going, oh, does this work? Does that work? Because yeah. it shows your football's a little bit behind, but we're at the stage where we've got so much data and people are chucking more and more stuff. It's like, well, what is actually relevant? What isn't? So I like the fact that there's still a level of ambiguity because it shows yeah. me that um, we've still got a little way to go. So I'm going to.
1: You don't want to like take the human element out of it. Right. And, and I, I think that's that's something that we do well as an organization is we do keep, you know, the, the athlete you know, and their best interests at the forefront of these discussions is that, you know, th- these aren't robots. Th- these are humans. And, and we just can't say, well, hey, do this because this certain stat indicates this like there there is a human element to it. And I think we do a really good job of keeping that in mind.
0: Awesome. I'm conscious of time. So the one last question for me, which is if I were to speak to any of the coaches that you uh, either manage or work on all side or any of the players that you work with um, to describe you in three words, how would you hope they described you?
1: <laughs> um, three words, presence, relatability, um, social intelligence like well it's two words right you know so there, there's four for you we'll so, put
0: we'll put the dash um, in there we'll say it yeah, it's yeah right. just
1: <laughs> blend it all together no i i think uh you know i think it's important to have a presence and i, and I think anybody you talk to will, will, will say that um and it's not meant to scare people it's just you know there's i want to have i want to have a presence when i walk into the room um the social agility aspect is something that's really important for me is because being able to navigate conversations with the player with my staff with our our front office they're they're not all going to be the same so i want to be able to have that ability to to adjust myself if i'm asking the players to be adaptable and just i have to do it myself um and, and then relatable and i and I, again like i've been a player i know what it's like to struggle um i, I i've had some success i know what it's like to be successful I I, want to be able to relate to guys and understand, like, get them to understand, like, this is not easy. What we do is not easy at all. Um, My coaches, my coaches have goals and dreams. I want to be able to, like, relate to them and understand that, like, I am here to, like, help support you and get you to where you want to go. And and then, you know, again, those are the things that I hope people (laughs) people say. We'll see.
0: Awesome. Well, listen, Brenton, really appreciate your time. I think a really good insight into hitting coach, hitting coordinators, what you do, some of the challenges, but also I think some, from what I'm hearing there, got some exciting pieces around actually how we helping these athletes understand their body and then trying to fulfill the, the, you know, the process, the progress, the promise that they want to do. So yeah, really appreciate your time and um, thanks very much. Yeah. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much.